Hello, readers. Randy Lanier is a legendary race car driver and pot smuggler. His life story is completely insane, and it is being told in the magnificent new book, Survival of the Fastest, Weed, Speed, and the 1980s Drug Scandal That Shocked the Sports World. Randy, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing like exceptionally well, Trey. Thank you. Love to hear it, man. So your love of racing began with a love of cars, and that was stoked when you were a five-year-old kid pumping gas to make a little extra money in Virginia. And uh, you were hustling as a kid, is, uh, which I think is a, uh, a great example of uh, just how your life would unfold over the next however many years. But when did you first find yourself drawn to the sport of auto racing, Randy? At that young age, um, probably six years old, uh, and you mentioned the five years old pumping gas, I would do it just because I like to be around cars and they give me opportunity to pump gas and feel like a little bit bigger of a kid than I was. So this is in Virginia. So around five or six, I got interested in racing when I heard it on an AM radio in my grandfather's barn. And what was the race that you heard? The Indianapolis 500. Um, so it was, uh, to me, listening to an announcer with these, uh, AJ Ford won that year. And so uh, listening to the announcer with my uncles and my grandpa, it was just uh, something that intrigued me and took a lot of years later on to actually follow my dream, but uh, made it happen uh, in my 20s. When did you first fall in love with marijuana? <laughs> so I fell in love with 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 marijuana probably the second time I smoked it. <laughs> the first time it didn't do that much for me, but uh, I've been smoking it for 53 years and long before I knew it was medicine. So uh, it's just an awesome plant. It has a lot of healing properties, not only for the people, but for the planet. And why did you end up quitting high school and going for your GED at the age of 15? Well, I, I kind of dropped out of school because I guess I was uh, wanted to be independent thinker. I had gotten caught with an ounce of weed uh, at 15 years old. I had just got my restricted license, and I got caught with an ounce of weed and on the at driving up my mother's car, restricted license at the beach, and going back to school. I had a lot of kids wanting to me to buy marijuana, and it was like a little overwhelming to come back in. I was just entering the 10th grade and all these kids were wanting me to sell them marijuana and stuff. And I kind of decided to go into another school and uh, get my GED at adult education. And if you were going to be selling weed to anybody, you weren't going to do so in the minor leagues. You were going to step it up into the majors, I guess, even at that time. Well, um, I didn't think about it. Like that at that time, I just it was a little overwhelming. Uh, all the the young kids want me to sell them weed. Uh, these are high school children, uh, kids, but I'm the same age. Uh, I'm 15 years old, and it was a little too much. So I I ended up going to a an adult education where I got my GED and ended ended up selling all. I was the youngest kid at the adult education school and. Ended up a lot of my clients being the the people there getting their GED, the older people. And for the next couple of decades, it seemed like you were scaling up with that operation each and every year. However, before we get into the details of 
uh, what became international pot smuggling for you. You experienced tragedy at the age of 18 when your younger brother, Glenn, died in a motorcycle accident. How did that affect you, Randy? Well, that was, I was tough. It was my closest brother. And, um, you know, when you're really close and you lose someone like that, it, uh, it take, it took me a minute to get over it. Um, we was back, we both grew up riding motorcycles and I had just handed him a motorcycle that, um, when I got off, he got back on and ended up uh, getting in a, an accident and not surviving. So that kind of put me in a tailspin and I had, I wasn't selling marijuana then I had, uh, kind of gotten off the path and that kind of was a catalyst, I guess, for me to get myself back into, uh, selling, selling weed. So by 19 or 20, so just a year or two later, you were fully into international pot smuggling. You even had three boats to help you with your operation, in South Florida, making runs to and from the Bahamas. And you would even spread it out across the country by the mid-1970s. Would you mind walking me through what this system looked like from you getting that initial call that the product was ready to doling the product out as far away as New York, Michigan, and Louisiana at that time? Well, the early stages of being a 19, 20-year-old guy that starts running weed in from the Bahamas, it, I didn't look at it as an international deal. It was just running to the Bahamas, picking up a load of weed, and bringing it back here to South Florida. Just, that's where I live, Fort Lauderdale. So to me, it was an adventurous thing. Uh, it was earning me enough money to do some racing that I picked up on doing some sports car racing that I got my hands in involved with. And so it was just something that steadily grew. So you do end up becoming an amateur race car driver at the age of 23 after a visit to the Miami International Auto Show in 1977. What was that first race like for you as an amateur at the Palm Beach Raceway in 1978? So the, the process of getting a competition license was a process for me of getting a car first. I picked a, a three, five, six Porsche Speedster, 1957 Porsche that kind of needed a lot of work. And once I got that operational and running where we could take it to a track, I went and I had joined Sports Car Club of America and got my competition license, took the car to the, my first home track, which is West Palm Beach. And Somehow, uh, the, the race, I didn't qualify that well, but the first race, I ended up winning. And that kind of really gave me a bug, having the family there at the race and barbecuing all weekend. It was a, it was just a lot of fun. And uh, the camaraderie that we was enjoying with the other people that was racing and stuff, it was uh, a great time in my life. All the while, you continue growing the pot business. What was the experience in 1982 that you went through that really forced you to change how you did business with cannabis involving a Cuban smuggler named Felix the Cat and some big galoot of an Irishman? <laughs> so uh, that was Muscle Billy. Um, so the turn of events there, a lot of times things doesn't go as planned when you are in a market such as an illegal smuggling operation and you have to improvise. 
And that this particular situation you're speaking about, uh, we lost a vessel. At least it was purported said to me that the vessel got ran aground, and uh, there was no evidence that the uh, vessel ran aground. And the people wasn't happy. They couldn't see that it was any where the boat was supposed to be. There was no boat that was there. So it was kind of a somebody trying to uh, get greedy and that situation caused me to rethink it after a um, they grabbed me up and kind of told me to have their money or the weed uh, and uh, I kind of didn't like the attitude they had so I kind of decided you know what I've had enough of this uh, I'm going to try to figure this out on my own hmm. you wrote that it is said that success occurs when preparation meets opportunity. There are examples throughout these pages of that playing out in real life with your racing career and then also your pot smuggling career as well. How did this come true for you at the 24 hours a Daytona race in 1982? Well, that wherever I go, I take my helmet and my clothes, uh, my, my driving suit and <clears throat> I, that opportunity, an opportunity presented itself when a, another race car driver for a Ferrari team that I was hanging out in the garages, uh, was getting ill, and I managed to speak to the owner of the team, and they gave me a four-lap kind of test, four laps around Daytona, and I had already captured the Sports Car Club of America e-production, driving my little Porsche Speedster. So the four laps I did was good enough to, within a second of the world-renowned Bob Wallach, who was a French driver for the French, for the German uh, Porsche team. But that, that opened the door to me to join in what's called International Motor Sanctioning Association uh, Grand Touring Prototypes. And that took me to Le Mans with the Ferrari team. But I just want to touch on something about success because my idea of success is a little bit different. Uh, uh, sure, when opportunity meets preparation, you have a much better advantageous of being successful and getting whatever it is that you do across the finish line. But I've come to understand, bro, that all of us can be successful every day of our life every day and it's pretty amazing when you come to understand that success is when your actions is reflected uh, with your intentions when it mirrors your intention your action mirrors your intention your success and so um try to put that in my daily life was there some sort of epiphanous moment that led to you believing as much, Randy? Well, throughout the years, uh, just last nine years in prison, I've been out for seven. My last nine years, I was a, a, a companion, a suicide companion for people that uh, are in maximum security prisons that uh, had tried to take their life. And mentoring them and I would sit with them for four hours a day. Some days we wouldn't talk, some days we would. But speaking with these gentlemen that had went through such trauma that they did 
as a young young boy. Um, a lot of personal things that maybe they've never shared with no one, but they shared with me. And so my intentions of maybe becoming of service to others kind of started getting embedded in me. And even as a young kid, my mother used to teach me that she worked for a, a Virginia State Hospital for the handicapped people. And it took me a long time to understand that the rewards that she got out of working with these people. And she, throughout her life, she, she passed away after I got out of prison at 92 years old. And she used to always tell me that the greatest form of knowledge is empathy. So along with that and some of the things I experienced being a volunteer companion in maximum security prisons kind of brought me to this understanding. Hmm. We'll maybe get into that world a little bit later on. First, though, you talked about how important the 24 hours of Daytona was for your racing career. Why did you go to Columbia for your pot smuggling business a few months later? And what was that trip like? The trip to Columbia was um, a lot of not knowing, uh, feelings of um, really not knowing that how I'm going to put all these ends together because I, my first trip, I went down to meet several families that was all involved in the marijuana business. And it just took me a little bit of time figuring out which one would be the best fit. And I think the choice of the families I made, because I'm, I'm, I'm I like everything peaceful and, and not no weapons. So being in South America in the early eighties, um, making things happen with this plant, bringing it into the United States. It was, the first trip was um, a little bit uh, concerning with the people and families I was meeting, but as we developed the relationship, um, I got more confidence that things that we were doing would work out. And so what was the result of that trip? Of the 1982 trip? Yes. That trip is I brought in 13,000 pounds of weed on a 65-foot trawler. That was yeah. my first load. When you came to the conclusion that you could make this happen and you watch, actually watched that first load get put onto the ship and then sent out to sea, how much did you guys celebrate after that? I mean, that is a massive haul. Well, is it? No celebration until after it was completely um, done and and put to put to rest, and uh, the load had made to the shore here in Florida. So once we got it all floated in Columbia, it was still a lot of work to do. And you kept bringing in bigger and bigger loads after that. You had multiple runs with more than one hundred thousand pounds of pot. Why? Did you feel the need to keep going bigger and bigger versus understanding that at a certain point it was going to become untenable? Well, one of the things that can get in our way on our journey, one, is our brain, our ego. So every time I would do a load and make a, a tremendous amount of money, um, I was racing. Uh, I started running two car teams takes millions of dollars to do that 
um, doing a lot of research and development. And the further you get into racing and the more testing and renting of tracks and uh, all the research I was developing, or um, our team was developing Kevlar brakes back before there was any such things known. This is in the middle 80s. We was doing research and development on cooling systems on for the vest and the, and the sock that a driver would wear. So I found ways to spend it, I, whether it was from racing or toys such as boats and planes and stuff like that. And um, a lot of it has to do with lifestyle and ego, probably. Um, if I go back and revisit it, would I probably put the brakes on earlier? Most likely. But who knows? I, I was living in the moment and living on a large scale and a large lifestyle. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. As a matter of fact, in 1983, you smuggle in 130,000 pounds of weed in one trip. You end up making $10 million cash off of that. What sorts of challenges did a load of this size present for you guys? That particular load was a lot of challenges because I had, if that's the New York load, I think you're speaking about my first real big load. And yep. That was uh, 1983. Sa sailing it in right under the nose of the Statue of Liberty, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that load was was uh, <clears throat> a lot of, wasn't easy. And none of them are. There's a lot of improvisation that you have to be able to adapt to. And that's one thing that we all have in common. We have many things in common, but adaptation is one of them. And uh, that particular load had um, some police agencies surveying uh, sur surveillance on the barge in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And we had to kind of pull it off the spot and take it to another another facility and fit, find a place to where we could actually do the offloading. So that was a, a hardship, but it worked out. We, we ended, It's like this smuggling is like, chest or art in a way because you're constantly trying to figure out and solve problems trying to find solutions you also started your own racing team in 1983 why and did that force you at all to change the your what you were doing with the cannabis business uh, in 1980 late 83 that was uh in 83 they had the miami grand prix and i was scheduled to drive with another team. I had a lot going on with my family and then catered events and stuff and qualified really good, really well, go out on the morning practice, gearbox breaks. So I, I get, didn't get to race in my hometown and it was kind of a, a letdown for me. And I, I kind of made a commitment internally that I think the way for me to proceed is to put together my own team that way i know that we have all the pods when a pods breaks i know we'll have it to replace it so that was like uh the big thing that got me deciding to start my own team so fast cars you also had fast boats obviously the the drugs all around is it safe to compare your real life in the mid-1980s to the fictional world of miami vice at that same time randy yeah, we would kind of live in the Miami Vice, no doubt, uh, from the Learjets to the parties to the racing. So um, it was the sign of the times. It was the, the times that I was living in, I guess, that I was 
right up front. Um, living a Miami Vice lifestyle, I guess. Did you own any suits that you rolled the sleeves up on? <laughs> no, but I, I, I had a few silk suits. That's what I liked. Nice. So your racing team finds success really quickly. After two second place finishes in your first two races, you and your team captured your first win in only your third race at the six hour long Los Angeles Grand Prix in Riverside, California. What was that moment like for you and your team? That was so real. I had just, I've been up in Northern California bringing another barge in and came down to LA Grand Prix and I hadn't even seen the track, never been to the track before. And so that was a, a challenge uh, when you don't see tracks or have no lap times on it. And then to do a six hour race uh, is quite incredible to, to win it. And it was such a new team. We, we was gelling, seems like everybody that was on the team, they, they gelled with us uh, really good. It was just a, a whole balance of personalities that fit like a glove. And when you, get something like that you have success and and it's just crazy how things can work out when you everybody is kind of on the same wavelength and the pop business was always evolving and growing just like your racing business seemed to be that included uh, bigger halls in connecticut as you just mentioned northern california you had a, a drop point in redwood city california just south of san francisco from California, you end up pivoting to New Orleans for a 155,000-pound load. Were you worried that things were becoming too big by this point? At that point, the size um, wasn't overwhelming because the demand was there. And it just seems to be that the, the demand was more than just the supply was. I mean, I could have brought in 250,000 pounds and it would have got all taken within a day. So it's amazing how this plant has been vilified for decades, decades, generations, propaganda that's totally not true. And but yet there's still people incarcerated. So the size didn't matter to me because the, the man was there. Yeah, there are some horrific injustices that involve individuals who are in prison for life based on a plant. And I know you uh, get on a bit of a soapbox in this book about that. I completely agree with you on that one. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit because the world was drastically different from when you went to federal prison to when you got out 27 years later, including the evolving uh, evolving beliefs around marijuana and how this reefer madness mindset had finally started to dissipate. Now, you and your team clinched the 1984 IMSA Camel GT title in 1984, and you decided to switch to the Indy Racing League that next year. And that first year was humbling for you, Randy. How did your first Indy 500 go? The first Indy 500 that I tried to enter, I, I wasn't successful. I had um, some hiccups um, out on the track on rookie orientation day. This is 1985. Um, didn't didn't get to race at the track. Actually, I was asked to leave the track over some words that I had with the chief steward. 
So I went, came back in 1986. So 1986 was my first actual time that I got to, to race at the track. And that I finished 10th and had a, had a good, had a good race. I'll say you had a good race. Now, what was the biggest lesson you learned with racing in that 1985 season? The 1985 season was really humbling. Um, I thought I could have done better than what we were doing. I made some decisions that hampered my capability. Um, I, I kind of, I understand now that where we put our attention, our energy follows. And I had put my attention on two types of chassis, meaning that I bought four, two car, two chassis each of a Lola and a March chassis, both made in England, IndyCar chassis. But it was too much testing those cars, two different chassis on the same day throughout the season was just too much data for me to take in and, and just too much research going on. I wasn't very uh, good at setting the car up that year. Uh, I, I, I think I was getting brain overload with all the testing. And the following year, I learned that, hey, let's stick to one chassis and put our ch attention on getting this one chassis set up and right at all the tracks instead of trying to dial in two different types of chassis. So I learned that, uh, you know, kind of pinpoint where we're putting our attention and and we'll have a little bit better results. While you were struggling to keep up with the competition on the racetrack in 1985, 85 was a, another record year for your pot business. But all of that was about to come crashing down, though, unfortunately. You got a call from your racing and occasional pot partner, Bill Whittington, in early 1986. What news did he drop on you at a Fort Lauderdale diner soon after? Yeah, so my, my co-driver, who helped me, along with the team, captured the 1984 GTP championship. He, he, all, he too, was involved with smuggling operations of marijuana. So um, he was getting indicted and charged, and it was uh, time for us to kind of go our separate ways and hated to leave him, uh, lose him as a teammate, but it was time for us to move on and uh, – you know, take care of our business separately. And people all around you started getting popped for drug trafficking with many also involved with the world of racing. You actually had your lawyer check to see if the feds were hot on your tail. What did he find out? So one of the things about the war on drugs back in the eighties, they were trying to win it. And that meant locking people up for long periods of time. Making examples out of people. Making examples. And I found out I was being investigated and tried to negotiate and work something out with the Justice Department. Couldn't come to terms. They wanted something that I wasn't ready to give up. My frame of mind wasn't into cooperating. So at the time, uh, I was good with complete forfeiture and... 20 years in prison, but the Justice Department wanted one more item, and that was complete cooperation. And just at that time, um, my frame of mind wasn't into harming anybody else, family. 
that um, through the justice system. If I just wasn't about going in and, and telling on people, I guess. So it didn't work out well. I ended up getting indicted uh, not too long after. So all of this continued to weigh heavily as you competed in the Indy Racing League. And once again, you end up back at Bricktown. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, you did really well the second time around. You set a rookie record for the fastest lap during qualifying. And you also ended up finishing 10th overall in the race itself, thus securing that Indy Racing League Rookie Driver of the Year honors. Interestingly, with 10 laps to go in the race, something happened to you that never occurred before or since. What was it? Well, in racing, when there's yellow flags, meaning something's happened, maybe an accident, and in this case, it was an accident. When yellow flags come out, you got a little time uh, in your concentration to take a break. You can flip your visor up, get some air. And this time that you're talking about, I wrote in the book about the first time it's ever happened to me, I started having some thoughts about something other than what's in front of me. And my my concentration kind of went out the door um, in a flash that can be dangerous. And I started thinking about the load. I, got, I had a load on the water when I was racing at Indianapolis 500. I was being followed by FBI, DEA, um, a lot of stress, a lot of wanting to get things done and without getting caught, but also I'm trying to negotiate with the Justice Department so I can get out. My my wife at the time was pregnant with twins. Um, a lot was going on. So my mind, uh, right before the last several laps, uh, accident occurred and I kind of started drifting off and, but my, I lucky my, my crew chief must've picked up on something because he kind of started talking to me and uh, we carried it home with the 10th place finish. So was getting in that race car all season long serving as a sort of respite for you and allowing you not to think about what felt inevitable for you. And that is the feds bringing your pot smuggling operation down was, was racing a, a uh, sort of place of sol uh, solace for you that season? When, when for me, when yeah. I get in a race car and I strapped in, I have clarity. Mm. All my outer priorities, now all my outer rim thoughts of my outer world goes away. It's almost like meditation. Now you're one with the car. And the more your concentration can stay, the higher level your concentration can stay, the more advantage you have of running up front. And the people that you see that are running up front has a lot of capability of being people that has tremendous amount of concentration. Hmm. So um, if you ever meditate or... Uh, do games, uh, eye and hand coordination or play tennis or something, you know that your concentration is so important. And uh, I think racing was a, a reprieve for getting in a car for all the stuff that I had going on in my outer world. 
So you are on the verge of being indicted. The FBI is following you everywhere you go. And as you just said, you still had this one last load on the water, this one last job that you and your business cohorts agreed would be that final payday. And it was another big one. I think it would have been a record for you. What ended up happening to that load, Randy? That road we had load, we had some some problems. We had something where we was hiding it in the ballast and um, there was a leakage and it caused uh, a lot of the merchandise to get wet. And uh, it was just a being followed, uh, having to load, having to be shipped. It was coming into New Orleans and about 10 days before it was due in, I got notified that um, they were aware that the load was coming into New Orleans and they were waiting for the vessel. So I had to uh, communicate with the vessel and kind of turn it around and send it back to the Panama Canal, through the Panama Canal up to the west coast of near San Francisco, Sacramento River. It was a long process. It took about six months. In October 1986, things finally come crashing down. Ironically, you were initially charged with smuggling crimes that you had nothing to do with. Even still, some other charges were likely on the way, and you went on the lam. You completely changed your identity, your look, and eventually escaped to Europe. So how <laughs> did you end up getting caught in Antigua a year well, later? Well, I thought I escaped. <laughs> uh, in my mind, I had all these contingency plans. I'm a guy that likes to have plan A and plan B and went to Europe on different passports. But I had a house down in Antigua with a boat down there and a crew. One of my crew members was also indicted. So he was living at my house in Antigua. And I went there originally to stay for one day. I had hired a crew to meet my vessel in Venezuela. And originally my, my grand scheme of plans was to go to Antigua, give instructions to my crew to take the vessel to Venezuela, have them fly back to Antigua and just leave it to house in Antigua. And I'd go back to Switzerland. That's where I was staying at was in Geneva and Zurich. Well, that one day ended up being five days. I, I ended up partying, fishing, getting lobsters and conch every day, anchoring up in islands that was in, uninhabited and just frolicking on the beach and just enjoying life. I, I, I love the ocean. I love the sea. And it, one day turned into five days and on the fifth morning two agents from the FBI that job was to fly five days a week through the islands looking for my vessel and they happened to find the, the vessel the day that I was on it hmm. that's the day I got captured and you do share the details of the moments leading up to your capture and a little bit after as well that includes uh you having to deal with an international identification and extradition hearing in Puerto Rico. And you were actually warned beforehand that if you made that process difficult, you'd be serving time in Rio Piedras, AKA the Alcatraz of the Caribbean. 
despite you complying, you did still spend a little bit of time there. Was it as bad as advertised? Actually, uh, well, the violence uh, was not good. They had just come off of a riot. Um, some couple of guards got killed, a couple of inmates. It was a gang riot. One particular gang took over the prison. And they have two really strong gangs in these prisons called G27 and Yepta. And it ended up being, I became friends on the first morning of what they call the number two shot caller for the whole prison. And being coming friends with him, I was on the front page. They kind of, uh, when I came out of the courthouse on a on an extradition hearing, identification hearing, they had the photographers waiting for me. And the next morning, um, I found myself on the front page of Puerto Rico prison, uh, a Puerto Rico newspaper. And all the, the prisoners had it. And they came up waking me up early in the morning, showing me my picture on the front page. And uh, the shot caller wanted to meet me. We became friends. He was a smuggler doing 35 years. And we got along quite well. So this, my stay there after that, was um, surprisingly okay. So the paparazzi provided you a bit <laughs> of credibility to help protect you there, huh? Yes, yes, they did. It was kind of a kind of weird had happened, but they put some notoriety kind of on it, and uh, uh, the prisoners was like uh, it was all in my favor. <laughs> So as you write about, prison has a way of breaking people. Many lose it that very first night in jail after sentencing. You were pretty close to the brink that very first night at the Supermax in Marion, Illinois, after receiving a life sentence. How did a cup of coffee help pull you back from that brink? Well, I had had a tough night. I, I just got sentenced to the remaining balance of my natural life, natural death, life with no parole. And it seemed like it all came crashing down after I finally got to where I got to a cell where I could lay down. And, and the thoughts that come into our brain were all really susceptible to sometimes actually thinking we are these thoughts. And I think that has a lot to do with depression and people that are, go in low, deep, dark areas. But we're none of that. We're not our thoughts. We're not our emotions. We're not our past. We're actually a, a proportion of the divine energy that created us. But that first night, I was, you just mentioned, I was down. I had been crying a lot to myself, uh, thinking I've have, I've messed my whole life up. My, my wife uh, was pregnant with twins. We lost one of the twins before birth. There was so much stress going on. Uh, I, 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 we got a divorce. I fled the country. I lost one of my sons. He was born without his brother. Um, just so many things. I got a life sentence. Uh, and then that's not to mention all the families that had fallen part to this war on drugs that was uh, connected to my organization. So it wasn't just me. It was a lot of families that was going through what I was going through. And um, that morning, an officer came by and treated me just as nice as can be, asked me if I could get, if I could, wanted a cup of coffee or, or something. And it's just, just that nice, friendly gesture. 
that, you know, there are people that do care. I kind of woke me up and said, wait a minute, I I'm, I can be in here with a sob-ass story. Or maybe I can actually make this into something a little bit more positive and, and better myself. So, um, like a light bulb went off. You also wrote that solitary confinement changes people. Your time in yeah. prison included a fair amount of solitary, 23 hours a day in an enclosed space with little to no natural light. How did solitary change you? In a big way. Uh, anybody that I've spent seven years out of 27 in solitary confinement and um a lot of dimes, it's 24 hours a day. They're supposed to give you an hour wreck every day. Well, five days a week. Two days, you don't get it wreck. You get a shower on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. The shower is 10 to 15 minutes long. You're handcuffed going to the shower. You're handcuffed coming back from the shower. You're in a stall locked in with a cage. When you take your shower, you got the guards walking by watching you. So... In your cell for those moments, and a lot of days during the week, though, you don't go to rec because there might be a cell extraction or something going on with the staff, and they don't have the staff to take you out to the little rec cage. The rec cage is nothing more than a dog kennel. It's it's where you go in. It's a solid chain link area that might be seven feet by 15 feet where you can pace back and forth, or you can do your push-ups and stuff like that, or your sit-ups. So... A lot of people, solitary confinement can do really harmful things to in dark ways. And because we are human beings, we like being social. And having your freedom taken away and putting in a little seven by 10 foot cell for long periods of time can change people for the good or can change people for the negative. And I chose the time actually to understand and do a lot of contemplation, a lot of meditation and developed a yoga practice, Tai Chi practice. Uh, my chest game got good. I, hmm. I uh, made chest pieces out of toilet paper and could play with a guy way down the, the tier through a, a, a little string that we would develop. I don't like to yell from cell to cell because I think it's disrespecting to people that might be sleeping. So one, one of the great things about when you have this much time to contemplate and you do a lot of internal work, a lot of self-reflections, and that can really cause us to have growth. And I mean that as in we all of us on this planet can get caught up on the outer priorities, the outer things that we want to achieve and succeed in. But when we get so out involved with our outer priorities, we can lose track of our inner priorities. And the inner priorities is actually more important than the outer priorities because the inner priorities helps us self, set a like a thermostat of how we want to go about achieving these things on the outside. And so it, it helped me in a way to reflect and understand that I'm much more than what I think I am. 
and we're all blessed because we all have many, many gifts. We have the gifts to change the experience of any experience we're experiencing simply by changing our perception of the situation or, or circumstance. And it, it sounds simple, but in any circumstance, whether it's a struggle or hardship, a financial problem, a relationship problem, we all have the ability to change our experience of this situation or circumstance just by changing our perspective. And it's an amazing gift. That's just one of the many, many gifts that we have internally. I've got a seven and five year old at home right now, Randy. That's one of the lessons that I try and part on them regularly because they're kids and it's completely understandable. They want yeah. to prevent why life isn't fair in a given moment. And that's what I always yeah. try to tell them. Yeah. You know what? Oftentimes life is not fair, but believe it or not, you are in greater control over how you move forward from whatever the situation is than you realize in that little brain of yours. Yeah. So we we have so many gifts uh, internally that can help us create a balance in the circumstantial situation that we're experiencing right now. And I tell you, for real, and as your children grow up, I have two six-year-old grandchildren, two little boys. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, when my, I come out of prison, my son, who was a twin, but we lost his brother, I come out, he's 27 years old. He was seven days old when I went in to join and I come out he has a girlfriend. She gets pregnant. I come out in 2014 of October in October, 2015, his girlfriend who was pregnant has twin baby boys. And that's my six year old grandchildren now. And I just want to tell you here is that it, it's amazing how these, we have a, another one of our gifts bro, is we have the ability and the capability and the capacity to be the observer and witness of what we are thinking and what we are observing, right? So understanding that you have this power, so you don't have to react right away. You don't have to be a reactive mind. You can be a responsive mind, but you have to come back and understand that, wait a minute, I can be the observer of what I'm feeling. I can be the observer of what I'm, I'm experiencing right now. And what is the best way for me to handle this situation emotionally and with the people and my peers that I'm experiencing this situation with? That is an incredibly grounded perspective. And thank you for oh, sharing you. that, Randy. Hey, took me many years to come to an understanding, brother. <laughs> All right. So as you just mentioned, and as people can surmise from the fact that you and I are speaking via Zoom right now, the yeah. life sentence that you were supposed to serve was miraculously reduced in 2014 to time served in part because of the important work that you were able to do through the challenge program. You talked about uh, getting uh, about working as a suicide companion and how yeah. humbling that was. I mean- what was that moment like to learn from that judge via phone call that you were about to get to leave prison and become a free member of society again when you had probably come to complete acceptance that you would be in there for the rest of your life? I had, it took me many years to come to the understanding that if these gates never open up, 
I'm okay. Because mm. guess what? I, I I taught myself how to oil paint. I just started a, I just finishing up a painting. I said, so I just finishing up a painting today. I hadn't picked up a paintbrush in a year because I, I took time off to write this book. And, um, but it's amazing that the, uh, upon hearing that I'm getting released and I'm actually going to be with my family, I'm actually going to be a free man. And it, it's like, it's every day I really understand what gratitude is. It's at the foundation of my daily awakening. That's the first, I, I give thanks before I get out of bed every morning that, you know what, I give thanks first that I woke up and that this energy still has given me the power to witness, be the observer and witness of what it is I'm experiencing. My last couple of years, I, I sat with uh, a family member that had dementia and having these powers of being the knowing that you're the witness and the observer of what it is you're thinking about and observing is an amazing power because in certain modalities these things start decreasing like Alzheimer's and dementia and we're blessed bro so first thing I wake up in the morning I give thanks that you know what my feet's on the ground and I'm just so blessed to be free. I can walk out this door, go outside, listen to the birds and just amazing. I, I, I love life. I love every moment of it. Yeah, it's understandable. So obviously you take any 27 year gap, the world is going to have changed significantly. In that oh, time. Boy. What was the oh, most boy. surprising thing about how society evolved, had evolved in the 27 years since you had been imprisoned? Well, the the phone situation. Oh, uh, God. Don't even get me started I, on that, Randy. I come out and I thought, oh, my God, the phones talk to you. And <laughs> they, they can tell you directions. They can tell you where things are. But my first thing was the first night I, we, I went out to dinner. Uh, and everybody in this particular restaurant, not everybody, but the majority of them, wasn't talking a lot of them had their phones out and I, I i told my family listen at dinner we will never have the phones out let's let's keep it the way we got it right now well you know i don't want to see i see these couples over there a couple let's say on a date <laughs> and they're over there on the phones instead of looking in each other's eyes and talking it's really sad, isn't it? There are some people who are incapable of just being present in a moment at this point. Yeah, the um, the phone habits, I think, is something that uh, a lot of these people have to look at. And I've been out for seven years and I have to catch myself. Wait a minute. I can send that email later. I don't have to do that right this minute. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm with somebody. My attention should be on that person so uh, and in saying that i just want to share one thing with us one of the greatest gifts that we have to give to somebody is being a good listener for real that's one of the greatest gifts we have and it's as simple being a good listener that's an awesome gift so you know don't don't be pulling out your freaking phone when someone's talking to you <laughs> I think it's maybe an underappreciated part of being a good observer. 
Part of uh, yes. is using your other senses other than just your eyeballs. That's right. Yes. And, um, you know, that intuition goes a long way. Mm-hmm. It really does. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times uh, the in- intuition is that brain on overload telling us, kind of helping us make decisions. So in the uh, eight years since you got out of prison, you reconnected seven. with your family, as you talked about. Excuse me, seven years. That's an important number to get right. It'll be eight in October. Years. I came out in 2014. Okay, so, so it'll be clo- eight, eight in October. You're right. Close to eight. So you've reconnected with your family, which is awesome. Yeah. Remarried yeah. the love of your life, Pam. Yeah. A brand ambassador for two cannabis companies, MJ yeah. Harvest Inc. and Cannabis Sativa Inc. I'm a big Sativa guy on this end. And you're oh, also right the vice president of a 501c3 nonprofit called freedomgrow.org. Yeah. What is this organization and what is y'all's wish program? So thank you for mentioning freedomgrow.org. Um, I was hoping I'd have a chance to do that. Uh, freedomgrow.org is a all-volunteer nonprofit organization that helps cannabis prisoners and their families. We're all about supporting them and their families because we believe no one should be locked up for this plant. So the WISH program is, it, we have about 178 nonviolent cannabis prisoners and the WISH program is if you're one of these prisoners and it's your birthday or your mother's birthday, your grandmother's birthday, your grandchildren's or your daughter's or your son's or your mom's birthday, you tell us what you wish for them to have and we make it happen. We also do holiday gifting. Um, for, like, for example, that last holiday was Easter. The 178 people have 126 children. So we made up. 126 Easter baskets with little water bottles that said, you're strong, you're brave, and you're smart. Wow. We put we put Rubik's Cubes for the children. We put uh, activity books in the Easter baskets along with chocolate buddies and Easter eggs and so forth. So that's just one of the things we do along with commissary funding each month. What a, a great service for society. Thank you for that. And last, last question, Randy. As I was reading this book, I kept saying to myself over and over again, this is like the cannabis version of the book Blow and the subsequent movie starring Johnny Depp. So I was not at all surprised to see once I had finished this book and looked at the front cover once again that Bruce Porter, the author of Blow, had some very kind words to say about your book. So my question based on that is, does Hollywood have any plans to turn this into either a movie or a limited series? Because, man, if there is a story that I've come across in the last couple of years that's deserving of such treatment, it is your book. Thank you, sir. Uh, Bro, it's amazing how things are coming about. Uh, The book got picked up by a studio about two months ago before it's even published. And mm. they've, they've got the rights now for a full feature film. So that's in the works. It's under development. Uh, thank you. And I, I want to tell you something else that ironic in March the 28th of this year, the state of New Jersey awarded me a social equity cultivation license in the state of New Jersey. Wow. <laughs> 
a huge license, a license to cultivate 75,000 square feet of canopy. That's about 40,000 pounds of weed a year. <laughs> so with that said, a, once I get this up and running, a percentages are going to companies like a nonprofit. All of us are volunteers. None of us take salaries. And we support the cannabis prisoners. So now I have actually a platform with this cultivation license to where I can help. Like right now I'm raising funds for back to school supplies and I'm having a hard time because of the industry's uh, fear of the recession and the, the way things are with the economics of this country right now, the economy, people are tightening their belt, even these big MSOs, which is a multi-state operator in the uh, cannabis industry, I'm having a hard time raising funds for 126 children. And mm. we have like, we have enough now for 65 children to send uh, gift cards. I, we like to send gift cards because they give lists for these children. These schools now give lists, unlike the old days. Now they give these lists of supplies that they need to get. Mm. So, I'm right now raising funds for school supplies and it's going to be awesome to be able to, to not have to worry about how we're going to raise these funds for these moments when the children kind of need us the most. If somebody wants to contribute financially, they can go to freedomgrow.org. Is that right? Yeah, yeah Yes, sir. Freedomgrow.org. Check us out. If you haven't, please. We're, we're all volunteers. None of us take a salary again. We're all people that's been impacted by the war on drugs. He is Randy Lanier, legendary race car driver and pot smuggler. His new book is one of the best of the year. I have no problem oh, saying you. that right now, even with a few months left in 2022. It's called Survival of the Fastest Weed Speed and the 1980s Drug Scandal That Shocked the Sports World. Randy, thank you so much for the time thank today. You. Thank you for sharing your story on this radio show and podcast and best of luck with things in the future. I hope this is not the Thanks last time out. that you and I have a chance to speak. No, we're, we're, we're running each other. We'll burn one. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to that, Randy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you too, gentleman. Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. And thanks to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. And thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.